The sun was rising over the city of Jerusalem, and in the quiet early morning hours, these two men entered in what may have been the only honest discussion that was had that day. One man's fate rested in the hands of another. And as these two men wrestled with the issues that laid before them, one of them would turn and ask a question that still haunts us to this day. Jesus had spoken to Pilate and he had said, if everyone who listens to me lives with the truth. And Pilate responds back to him in this odd way. He says, what is truth? It's a question that I think, whether Pilate meant it honestly or rather dismissively, we, we certainly understand that to be a struggle still. What is truth? How do you define this valuable thing that we are called to love and to cherish in Scripture? How do you put legs on this ideology of what it means to be truthful, to build on the truth, or to live in the truth? If you went go to the dictionary, you get stale definitions. Like those you find like at dictionary.com, they said that it's an actual state of manner in conformity with reality, or maybe Wikipedia, to be in accord with fact or reality. Then there's Webster's Dictionary, who uses great big words like fidelity and constancy and fact and actuality. Those are great terms, but really they don't help us. What does that mean? That's the problem with truth. We know although it's important. We feel it when we are hearing it. We know when we're not getting it. But where do you find it for sure? Graduates, as you guys head out into this great big world, one of the greatest challenges for you it will be as it has been for all of us. What do I build my life on anyway? What is it that I can really trust? Who is it that I can really depend on? And those of us who are raising families or grandkids or great-grandkids, or are loving the neighbor kids. We struggle with the same questions. Last week, we began a sermon series where we, we talked about the value of certain foundations in the home and in, in family. And we talked last week about how that we need to invite Jesus in, that we need to make Jesus not just a concept, but we need to make him a part of our home, that member of our home that maybe is unseen, but certainly not unfelt in his influence. But how do we do that? How do we make Jesus real? As Jesus always does, it seems that Jesus has the ability to reduce complicated concepts into the most simplest of forms. And he does it brilliantly in, in John the 8th chapter, picking up in verse number 32. You know this text. Jesus said, and they will know the truth, and the truth will set them free. What a beautiful, what a powerful bit of scripture, right? That they'll know the truth and this thing that we call truth will set them free. But then we're still left to wonder, well, what is this truth and where do I find it? I've heard this passage of scripture used and abused in many cases. But if we only looked one verse ahead, Jesus, in fact, defines that for us in verse 31. He said, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. 
That word abide is kind of a weird word. We don't use that in our normal language in modern America today. But the concept is that, that we take something and we make it ours. That it, It's not just something that we notice or, or something that we like. It's not just a concept that we're familiar with, but it's a concept that we internalize, that we live with it, that it becomes a part of who we are as people. If you abide in my word, then you're my disciple, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know, maybe one of the challenges for us to define truth is that we kind of have to work our way through maybe some of the bad definitions of truth. Because maybe we don't realize it, but sometimes we've been kind of programmed by our experience, by our life, by people who are great influences in our life to believe certain things about truth that just aren't truthful. And maybe, maybe we have the idea of truth that, that often is referred to as secular truth. And that's just the idea that, that, hey, truth is a perspective. Something may be true to you, but if somebody else is looking at it from a different angle, from a different approach, from a different background, from a different culture, they may see that differently. But the problem with that is, is that we're all humans. And even though we see things differently, it doesn't necessarily make it true. Take, for example, a, a recent survey that was done of Americans, middle-aged Americans, my age, all right? So uh, for some of you people, that's old people, all right? Um, but middle-aged Americans, and, and they asked them a simple question. They said, are you physically fit and are you physically attractive, right? So um, pretty simple question, kind of. The first group of guys, 40% uh, of, of overweight men <laughs> who were asked this question. What are you guys laughing for now? Yeah, 40% yeah, of overweight men, when asked that question, said, in fact, the study used the word obese men. So 40% of obese men, I don't know whose category they're using, but these guys said, yeah, I'm in good shape and I look good, all right? 40% of those guys are like, no problem here. I am very comfortable with the body that I have, I have created right here. But 29% of women who did not need to lose weight felt that they needed to shed 5 to 10 pounds to be attractive. And that study just points out why, why secular truth just doesn't work. Just because you have a perspective about something doesn't mean that you're right. And in some cases, your perspective might be dangerous. The women that, that answered that survey, those 29% of those women, they did not have 10 pounds to lose and still remain healthy. And that 40% of guys that were obese, that were way too big, who were comfortable with the size that they had, were not in good health and would pay with their health because they simply didn't acknowledge what was real. So secular truth doesn't really provide us a firm foundation that we can really trust. Maybe, maybe for some of us, we're familiar with truth as, I call it traditional truth. That, 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 that truth was handed down to me from my fathers, from my great-great-grandfathers. I don't know how many of you, how many of you have in your family old 
old wives' tales, or as our buddy calls them, old wives' tales. Um, old wives' tales that are just absolutely ridiculous, but you have family members that absolutely believe in them. Anybody else besides? Okay, good. I was worried that it was just my family. All right? My family has a good many of these things. My uncle and I like to laugh about them, um, and there's some pretty ridiculous ones. I won't make fun of my family. Um, I'll just tell you that my granddad, though, believed in the farm, Farmer's Almanac. Anybody know what I'm talking about, Farmer's Almanac? This is a kind of a yellow sort of book, has all kinds of stuff. Pretty much all of it has to do with the sign of the moon, all right, and other things, right? And, and, and so my granddad had very stringent requirements based on the signs of the moon. I mean, we didn't burn trash in certain signs of the moon because it said in a Farmer's Almanac that wildfires can start in that sign of the moon, right? And, and I, I'm a kid, and I asked questions, and I was aggravating my poor granddad. And finally one day I said, Grandpa, why do you follow that stuff anyway? Because I thought it was stupid. Now, there may have been some truth to it. but And Grandpa told me this. He said, well, my, great, my grandpa taught me that. My dad used this, and I've used this, and so should you, he said, right? And that's the thing about traditional truth. Is sometimes there's something real there. I inherited a lot of traditions from my grandparents spiritually that were founded on biblical truth, and they were real, and they were powerful, and they made a lasting difference in my life. But if it's just a tradition, we really can't trust that to be the thing that we build our life on. If you were like me, my approach to truth as a young man was a scientific approach to truth. That truth is facts. It's information. It's empirical data. And, and once we have that empirical data, we can study that empirical data, and we can know what is. And that would work out in a beautiful way in a world where everyone was completely honest and no one had any biases about creation or about about morality, but scientists are human. They're just like us, and they come preloaded with their own ideas of how things were and how things became into being and, and who should be in charge of what areas of life. And sometimes when they look at data that doesn't have a sharp answer, they fill in the blanks. Some of you may not be science people. I still am. A few years ago now, we launched a new space telescope called the Kepler Space Telescope. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this, but Kepler is now deployed and fully operational, and Kepler is changing what we thought we knew in astronomy. We thought that everything had maybe come from a one particular cause. The Big Bang is often how we refer to it. And so we expected certain things to be consistent as we looked deep into the outer reaches of our universe. But what we have found is that on the deep outer reaches of our universe, there are other universes larger and at the same rate of development as our own. This should not be. In fact, it's so unsettling that one man in the scientific community simply just said, everything we knew about our origin, we have to rethink. And that's the problem with data. Data can only tell you so much. There's not certain kinds of data to be tested. And, and so whether our, our basis of truth is a secular basis of truth, you know, kind of how everyone looks at things and kind of merging together perspectives, or whether our truth is a tradition that's handed down, or whether our truth is facts that have been scientifically collected, each of those systems of belief leave us kind of empty-handed. They leave us on an unsure footing. They, they don't provide for us the answers that we truly need. How do I live 
my life today. The beauty of Jesus is, is that Jesus gives us that truth. You know, it doesn't really matter to me if there's universes that are five times bigger than our own on the far side of the galaxy. I'll never get to see them. It really doesn't matter to me about what every person in the world thinks about a subject because I don't have a big enough brain to even understand that or the cultural background to be able to pull it in. And although I may love history and I may respect my elders, everything that they thought was true, I know it isn't necessarily. How do I live today? Graduates, how do you build the next five years of your life? Well, for that is the fourth way that we can look at truth. It's a scriptural approach to truth. It's how Jesus looked at truth. It's how the Bible references truth. The truth isn't an idea collective. It's not a bit of data on a sheet. It's not a tradition handed down. Truth is a person. You might remember Jesus saying in John 14 and verse 6, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. As Jesus spoke that statement, maybe those in the crowd that day didn't quite pick up what he was putting down, but what Jesus was saying is, I, in my essence, in my personness, define truth. John opens up his, his gospel with that similar language, and Luke helps us to understand how we can apply that in our life. Because Luke records for us a story, a parable that Jesus told that kind of puts legs on our understanding of truth. I don't have time this morning nor the intellectual ability to be able to explain to you all the truth that's in the world. But if I can point you to the one who is truth, you can spend the rest of your life walking in his footsteps. And that is my hope as an individual and as a church that that is what we are doing each and every Sunday. If you are raising children, if you have kids that are home in your house, the greatest gift you can give them is an appreciation for who Jesus called them to be. That truth will make the biggest difference in their life. So if you have your Bible this morning, grab that, turn with me. Let's go to Luke, the sixth chapter, um, and we're going to read this parable that Jesus tells to kind of answer this question about how do we make use of Jesus being truth? How do we put that to practice in our life? And he begins like this. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? This isn't the only time that Jesus says this. And I think if any of you are parents here today, you know this phenomenon, right? Your kids come up to you, oh, mom and dad, I love you so much, right? And then you say something like, hey, I need you to take out the trash. Oh, why do I have to take out the trash? I always have to take out the trash. No one else takes out the trash. It's my brother's or my sister's turn to take out the trash. Why do you do that? We know these things, right, as parents. I don't think Jesus is complaining here. But I think he is asking a question that we should probably ask ourselves. Jason, why do you say Jesus is Lord, but then you don't do what Jesus says that you should do? It's a good question. It's a fair question. It's a challenging question. But then Jesus proceeds past that question to the story that follows. He says, everyone in verse 47 who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. 
Jesus understood how to paint a mental picture because he knows we understand those better. And he went to a story that I think we can all identify with. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundations on rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against the house, but it could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on ground without a foundation. And when the stream broke against it, it immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. For some reason in my life, I've always thought that these two guys were building two different places, one of them in the mountains and one of them down in the valley. But when you read that story, you realize that Jesus is just talking about two guys that are kind of building in the same subdivision. As you drove by on the street, you would see two well-manicured yards, two houses of similar construction, two families that were dwelling in those two houses. But Jesus said there was a fundamental difference in the two. Because one of them, the person had taken time to dig down and find something firm to build that home on, to build that life on, to build that family on. And the other guy, he just started building his house. And look, I think we all understand that second guy, right? Because it's so tempting to kind of do that sometimes. We, years ago, we, we, we built a home, and, and it was an exciting time in our life, but we had a budget. We needed to stick to that budget. Some of you who built a house know all about that. And, and my neighbor did dirt work. He had done it for years, and I trusted him completely. And so I said, hey, I need you to come over. I need you to, I need you to kind of tell me what I need to do. And he said, this is what we're going to do. We're just going to keep cutting dirt off until we find, find good, compact soil. And they have a compaction checker, you know. And so he said, then we're, we're going to dig up, and we're going to haul dirt in, and we're going to build up back up to ground, and then we'll kind of spread everything else around. Sounds good. I go to work. I come home at noon for lunch. And in my front yard, where my house was supposed to be, there was a gigantic hole, right? I think it was 40-some inches deep in the ground they had dug down. And he said to me, I think we finally found some hard soil. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, how many truckloads of dirt is it going to take to haul back in here to build that pad? Had I not had someone as wise building my home, I might have been tempted, as probably most of us would, to say, you know what, I'm more excited about what color the walls are going to be and uh, what kind of shingles I'm going to put on the roof, and I want to build a shop over there, right? That's what I was excited about. No one gets excited about foundations, but I'm super thankful that he dug out 38 inches of dirt and hauled in 38 inches of good fill. Because when I go home today, I'm very certain, unless something very strange has happened, in the time that I've been gone, my house will be there, firmly sitting on the foundation that was built for it. As we close this morning, I just want us to break down this parable that Jesus told us. Because I think there's three really important lessons that we can catch beside the obvious one. And the first lesson is this. We are always building. If you're a grandparent in the room today, you're building. If you're a parent, you are building. If you're a young 
high school senior that is stepping out into the world, into college, you're building. If you're a college student right now and you're building, we are constantly building the life that will become the shelter for our own lives as well as the lives of people around us. The question isn't whether or not we're building. The question is, how are we building? And Jesus lays out here for us two varying kinds of building, two different builders with two different uh, sets of perspective right here. One guy that is building, and he does the hard work of digging down. Some of you students in the room right now, you know exactly what this phase feels like. Because maybe a year or two or three ago, you were where these guys were standing a little bit ago. And you were stepping out into the world, and the world was full of possibilities, and you were pumped and excited about everything that was going to happen. And then life, as it does, kind of descends on you, something like a landslide or a mudslide or a flood or a, yeah, okay, some kind of natural disaster. And it just descends down on you, and you find yourself wondering, do I have what it takes? If you're here in the room this morning, and you're asking yourself that question, that's a good question. Do you have what it takes to survive? What's ahead? That's all Jesus was asking in this question. And some of you young people, I know because you've called and talked to very one, various ones of us, have stopped and started digging. And if you're not a person that's done that yet, can I challenge you this morning to become that person? Go out into the garden shed, get a shovel, not in your yard. I'm talking metaphorically here, guys. Um, but get a garden shovel and start digging down. Start to find something that you can really build your life on. Because whether or not you realize it, every day that you live, you are adding another nail, another board, another bit to the house that will be your shelter for what's coming. You notice that Jesus says something very specific, though, when he talks about the building. He said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. I'm really good, and maybe you are too, at hearing things, but then not doing things. I'm really good about hearing things and even having the intentions of doing things, but not carrying through. It's really easy for us to think, you know what, I should build a good foundation. You know what, Jason said that was a good idea. And then when it comes time to start building, just start laying stuff down on the bare ground. Jesus said if you hear these words and you do them. And maybe, maybe the doing part is the hardest part of all. Students, you guys have had a lot of people that have poured into your life from a very young age. If you grew up at Forest Park, you had Miss Catherine put you in one of those little yellow seats in that little classroom over there, and she got her little Bible out. You have to talk high when you're talking to little children, I think, right? And uh, you, you, this is a Bible, and you kiss, kiss, kiss it, right? Some of you guys grew up, and you had that early experience. You had Sunday school teachers, maybe in this building, or if you're old, a little bit older, over in another building, and, and they poured in you, and they taught you these Bible stories, and they, they illustrated the Bible text to you. You've gone to VBS and to camp, maybe to NYR, and you've heard talented people pour into you about the importance of the Word of God. That had exposure. But all we can do is share it with you. 
All we can do is make sure that you heard the word. We can't make you do it. I'll be honest, as a preacher for a while in my life, I did try to make people do it, and it just about broke me because that's not my job. So what does it look like if I'm building my life on the sand anyway? How do I know if I've not taken time to dig down and put a foundation? Well, the quickest way is to look around and see what you're building on. What is it that your trust is based in? Because some people will say, you know what? My, my trust will be based in my education and my career. Now, guys, you will not hear ever from me that education is not important. I think that education is an absolute essential. And I think if you live in America today, you have an opportunity to educate yourself and learn. And if you don't take that, then shame on you. So whether that is going and getting a trade and learning how to do something to contribute in the world, or it's, it's, it's going to college and learning how to be a doctor or a lawyer, I don't know where God's calling you, but, but use the opportunity you have to help people and to pour in other people's life. Never stop learning. But if, if, if your hope, if your trust is in your education, that's not a very solid place to build. For some people, their hope and their trust is in their financial situation. They're good with money. Maybe they've invested money. Maybe they've made money. Maybe they've built companies. Maybe whatever the case may be. Maybe someone inherited a bunch of money, right? And they think, you know what? I have a lot of money. I'm secure financially. Jesus told a parable about a guy like that who had a great bumper crop of a year. And he said, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns. And then I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry because I have a lot of good stuff laid up for a lot of years. And God's response to that guy was mm, pretty foolish because you don't know if you even have tomorrow. What if maybe our, our foundation is relationships? It can be real easy for us to make people the foundation of our life. Maybe you're married this morning to an amazing man or woman. They're the center of your world. Hey, marriage is a beautiful thing. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. A good, godly marriage is one of the greatest blessings that you will ever have in life but you can't build your life on somebody because maybe they, they might get sick and go on to meet the Heavenly Father before you do or maybe something will change in their heart and they'll step out of your life. If you're building your life on the relationship with your kids, someday those kids are going to be like these kids. They're supposed to all be babies, right? That's how I see them. Um, they're supposed to be the little guys playing around at the house and they're not anymore. They've grown up and someday they'll go their own way. If they are a foundation, it's just not sufficient. If you find yourself breaking apart and being overwhelmed when things go wrong, it's probably a real good indication that you don't trust your foundation. I'm not being critical of you this morning because I've been there and probably everyone in this room has. But what I am encouraging you to do is to go get that shovel and start digging. Because a, a life that's built on the rock just has this quality to it that is maybe not measurable, but certainly can be felt. In fact, maybe Jesus defined it the best for us in Matthew 6. It's a passage we reference often, but in verse 25, Jesus begins with this rather difficult statement for most of us. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life. 
Okay, Jesus, thank you for that. Don't worry, he says. It's all good. Just don't worry. And, and we are thinking to yourself, that sounds really good on paper, Jesus, but how do I live there? And then he goes on to explain a little bit more. Or what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, or what you will put on. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think that the basic needs for survival are food, clothing, relationships, but food and clothing and shelter, right? And Jesus said, don't worry about what you eat or what you will drink. That's pretty important to most of us. Or about your body or what you will put on. And then he asks this question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Let me ask you that question this morning. Is your life more about is your life more than just what you've eaten and what you enjoy? Is your life about more than just the image that you're projecting to everyone else around you? The vast majority of people in America today, that is their life. It's their momentary enjoyment. It's the vacation that they'll go on next year. It's the, it's the person that they're putting forward to the world through their social media. You know, we live in a world today, guys, where we have an attention economy. That's how economists are describing our world today. More money is, is put and spent by Americans in getting attention on ourselves and shaping our idea of who we are than almost anything else. We don't worry about what we'll eat or what we'll drink because we live in a land of such abundance. It's just everywhere, right? We're just about, in fact, most of you are like me, and we're thinking, when do I go get burgers and hot dogs? When does Jason shut up and let me eat, right? We are, we are going to go eat, and we will put food in the freezer this afternoon because there's more than we could ever eat. That's the world we live in. Jesus said, Jason, is your life more about more than just the pleasure of life and your image in the world? I hope it is. And Jesus continues. He said, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or they reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? Or which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to your stature? Now, I tried this one. I didn't know this was in the Bible but when I was a kid, I willed myself to be taller. I did not want to be 5'8". That's what my dad was, 5'8". I desperately wanted to be 5'9". The Lord dropped me off at around 5'8 and a half. My dad said that it didn't count. Um, yeah. But you can make yourself taller by wanting to be taller. Or why worthy worry about clothing? Well, I could think of a few reasons, Jesus, but, but stay with him. Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Now, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is to which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith. I hate that word. <laughs> he says it a lot to the disciples, and he says it to us. Why don't you trust me? And I guess that's a good question. You know, one of the most powerful things about our foundation in Christ is it's one that we can, we can trust. 
said, therefore, don't worry in saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For your Gentiles seek these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need all these. But here's the secret to building your foundation on Christ. It's so basic, but sometimes we just flip over it. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What Jesus is saying is when you start out with the right foundation, the rest of the house just kind of naturally comes together like it should. Because when you start on the right foundation, you're not building alone. It's a beautiful thing about Jesus. When we invite Jesus in, when we say, you know what, I'm ready to, I'm ready to, to, to use your words and to abide with them and to make them a part of my life, there's just naturally things that you do that just work and it just makes sense. Maybe this is a first step for us and some of us today, that we build our thoughts on Christ, we focus on his truth and on his promises. And I think you will find that your life just kind of naturally falls into sync. There's a lot of younger people in the room today, and guys, I know this is one of those places in life where you're standing on the cusp of a future full of possibilities, and it's a little scary. I get it. You might not think that's true, but the older people in the room feel it too. The world is not a usual place. It's not the world my grandparents grew up in. Change is happening so rapidly that sometimes it can just catch us all off guard. And we might ask ourselves, what can I hold on to? If you've dug down and you have a foundation on who Jesus is, if you're trying to follow him, it doesn't really matter what happens tomorrow. You're not alone, and you've got it. As I close this morning, I just want to remind you of what Jesus reminded us of. And that is there's a storm coming. I don't know what that will look like for you. I know what those storms have looked like in my life. And I know that's kind of like Hurricane Audrey was in the south down here years ago. You don't always know when it's coming. But you can tell from the winds that something's up. I don't mean to be melancholy with you guys this morning, but I think we all feel like the winds are picking up a little bit of speed in our world today, don't we? Young people, your generation is one of the most uncertain about the future, and I know why. Because we're uncertain about the future, too. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this, that wherever the future may take us, if you've dug down and you've found out where Jesus is and who Jesus has called you to be and how Jesus wants you to live your life, if you are putting on Christ and how you look at the world, it really doesn't matter because he is going to be there with you. And anywhere where Jesus is, you're good. My favorite story of the New Testament in later years has become the one in, the, in which Jesus is exhausted and finishes a day of preaching and flops down in the bow of a boat on a cushion and tells the disciples, sail us across the lake. And they, they start to do that, right? They, they get in the boat and they start paddling across the lake or sailing across the lake, and then a terrible storm begins to break out. 
Winds begin to blow and the water begins to crash against the boat. And these guys are scared to death. They think they are about to die. And they start to look around. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? Which is exactly the thing that we should do when things get uncertain. And they see him sleeping on a cushion in the front of the boat. And they go to him and like, Jesus, don't you care that we die? And Jesus rubs the sleep out of his eyes and he stands up and he says, peace be still. And the entire sea just becomes like glass. And these guys are amazed. They're standing and they're looking at him and they're thinking, what in the world have we just seen here? And Jesus says that phrase, oh, you of little faith. Jesus was asleep on the cushion because he knew he had nothing to fear. And those guys didn't have faith because they were in a boat with Jesus and they were scared. Students, as you head out into the world, it's a scary place, I won't lie to you, but if you're in the boat with Jesus, it's going to be okay. You can trust that foundation. That storm is going to come, that wind is going to blow, and your house will stand firm. And not only will it be a shelter to you, but it's going to be a shelter to everyone else who is at a wash around you. Students, as I close the day, and we're going to wrap up with this, what we need more than anything else is families, churches, and individuals who are built on Jesus. Not on programs, not on plans, not on image. I'm talking about built on Jesus. Because someday that wind is going to blow. And when it does, people are going to look for a place to seek shelter. And my hope is that this church is that place, that your life is that place, that your home is that place. We're going to stand together, church, and we're just going to sing together a closing song as we always do. Graduates, again, we are proud of you. We love you. We are praying for you. Build your life on Jesus Christ. And if you're a person here today that is building a home and is raising children, that foundation of truth is the most important thing that you can build that home on. If you have a need this morning for prayer as we stand together, why don't you come? There's people here that love you and care about you. They're going to lift you up. Let's sing together.
Sunday as a church family, we gather here to remember that we love him because he first loved us. And this morning, Bryson is going to come and he's going to remind us of the cost of that and the opportunity that comes through Jesus' gift on the cross. that the cross for, is the reason why our sins are forgiven but what exactly has it changed I know a lot of times I'll talk about this and I know some people around me w- would talk like this but we almost talk in kind of a jealous way about the people in the Bible and we talk about how if we could just walk with Jesus the way that they walked with Jesus. If we could physically see him, or what it would be like if we could hear the words from his mouth, or if we could physically follow him. We might even say that if we were in Peter's situation and and we were close to God physically like we were, like Peter was, then we might even say that we wouldn't deny him the way that Peter did. Or we might even say that If I was over there with him, then I wouldn't be here today living in sin. And we oftentimes look at the people of the Bible, even in the Old Testament, and we have this, it's like if we just think that we got the bad hand of the dick or that they had it easier than us. We look at people like Moses and We think about what it would be like to lead God's people through the Red Sea or to see manna fall from heaven or to see the burning bush. What would it be like to see or to be thrown into a fire and not be burned? And I think sometimes we tend to think that we have the bad hand because, well, we don't see that stuff like they did in the Bible. But I think Jesus thought something a little different. I think maybe our perspectives might just be a little wrong. In John 16, 7, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. So according to Jesus, according to this verse, we are at the advantage. Because when he died, we were sent a helper. We're, I'm in a Bible study group, and we're going through this book, and one of the chapters a couple weeks ago started talking about what the conversation would be like if we would meet some of the people of the Bible in heaven. And, you know, you would think that you would go up to somebody like Peter, and you would be like, Peter, what was it like to follow Jesus, to actually physically be there with him? Or Moses, what was it like to see manna fall from heaven? What did that taste like? What was it like to see the burning bush? But maybe we wouldn't be the ones asking the questions. 
Maybe it'd be the other way around. What if we get to heaven and Moses runs up and he's like, guys, what was that like? You have to tell me everything. What was it like to have the spirit of God living inside of you? What was it like to have a spirit, the spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, living inside of you, being active, working in your life, working through you, leading you, and guiding you through your life? What was that like? Maybe we have the perspective a little wrong. We look at the cross, and we're here today to remember that Jesus died, and he rose, and that's the reason why we're forgiven. We're here to remember his sacrifice and the things that he went through. But the cross didn't just do that. Jesus didn't just do that, but he changed absolutely everything. Because of the cross, we no longer walk in darkness. Because of the cross, we know that with confidence we could walk on this earth and we'll be guided by a spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And we could have confidence that we have a spirit that intercedes between us and God and allows us to have such a deep, intimate relationship with God. But we all know that, right? So maybe that's not the question we should be asking. Maybe we should ask a different question. Not what has the cross changed, but what has the cross changed in you? We come today and we'll partake in the cup and we'll remember Jesus. And we come here and we'll remember the sacrifice that he had on that cross and, this, and all of the things that he went through in his life. And we remember that the cross changed absolutely everything. And with that, we lean in into that intimate relationship with God and we allow that to change us as well. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together and just to remember all that you've done for us. We recognize that the greatest gift that we could have ever been given was your son on that cross. We recognize the love that you have for us and, and we thank you for our sins being washed away. We thank you for allowing us to receive a helper, to receive a spirit that will lead us and guide us through our life, God. We thank you for your love and your mercy and for all that you do for us. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.